Hello and welcome to another episode of Tech Buzzwords from Whatis.com. I'm Alex Howard, Associate Editor at Whatis.com. Today's episode focuses on 3D chips. IBM recently made headlines with the announcement of a new technology called True Silicon Vias that may revolutionize the way chips are made, enabling manufacturers to layer and stack processors in a novel fashion. While 3D chips aren't a new idea, this technology is. And in this podcast, you'll hear an exclusive interview with one of the IBM research engineers responsible for the breakthrough. Carrie Bernstein is the principal investigator for 3D integration technology at the IBM T.J. Watson Research Center in upstate New York. 3D chips may well provide the means to extend Gordon Moore's famous law well into the 21st century. To learn more about what 3D chips are, how they work, how they're made, and what they might hold for computing in the future, let's get to that interview. Thanks so much for joining us today, Carrie. My pleasure. Well, uh, Whatis.com defines a 3D chip as an integrated circuit composed mostly of semiconductor material containing a three-dimensional array of interconnected devices that perform digital, analog, image processing, or neural network functions singly or in combination. Uh, 3D chip technology solves a number of issues that have been challenging chip manufacturers looking for performance increases and reductions in processor size. Is that about right? What would you add to that? How would you shade it differently? That's a very good definition. I would only add that uh, 3D interconnect actually refers to a, a whole family of technologies which collectively reduce the effective electrical distance between computer resources in a, in a socket or in a subsystem. And more importantly, these technologies, this whole range of technologies at different uh, capability levels, they enable many orders of magnitude more bandwidth or communication between the, the silicon and the other critical resources, and it also reduces the uh, delay or the latency in accessing those resources. And to just put it in absolutely um, graphic terms, always difficult to do over audio, though, the, the reason that the latency is reduced uh, is because the transistors are no longer separated by essentially the, the width of the chip. They're not ar- arranged in a horizontal, two-dimensional layout. It's because the uh, the wafers that make up the chip are stacked right upon one another. This is correct. It, traditionally, chips are two-dimensional, and if one wants to uh, add more resource to the chip, one has to expand in the X or the Y direction. But, of course, uh, the signal, even moving at the speed of light in the medium, has a fixed amount of delay in accessing that, and since we're squeezing cycle times to be faster and faster, there's less time to get at it. And on top of this, the metal, the, the interconnect technology has not improved, has not been able to keep up with the speed of the transistor. So there's a double dent that the interconnect has taken over time. Now, as I understand it, the major innovation that um, IBM has come up with here is the, the concept of a through silicon via. And can you explain what that is and, and how it's significant? And uh, if, you, if, if possible, uh, where the idea came from and, and uh, how you actually uh, brought the idea off the drawing board and, and um, into a chip. Sure. Uh, the through silicon fia refers to a, a, a connection that is made uh, between chips in the Z direction. Um, and some people, it's 
rather cute. Some people refer to these uh, vertical connections as vias, as compared to the vias that we have on 2D chips. Um, the notion is that in, in two dimension, in two dimensional chips, the chip is typically uh, is is built uh, hierarchically, and then there's a uh, a layer of C4s or solder balls that uh, make the connection between the, the chip and the carrier, either the package or the, or the board. The notion is now that we wish to, uh, rather than expand in the X direction, we need to expand in the Z direction with additional active layers of silicon. And when one does that, we still need to be able to uh, get the signals out of the assembly, or this 3D apparatus, and out to the outside world. So this means that in order to provide that, that continuity, the electrical continuity, the signal has to pass through any additional layer that we add. Uh, so the TSV or the through silicon via is, uh, is one of those solutions that enable that. The size of the through silicon via is directly proportional to the aspect ratio, meaning that the thinner the active silicon layer, the smaller this via can be. And the smaller the via can be, the more of them we can get in. And so this is very exciting because then... Uh, the more vias that we add, the more bandwidth or the more, the higher number of communication, communication channels we can provide between the processor and the added resource such as memory and the outside world. I did, in researching uh, this topic, find that the concept of 3D chips is not necessarily new. There have been people trying to pull this off now for at least the better part of a decade, if not longer. Um, what are some of the previous ways that people have been trying to create 3D chips, and what are the, the crucial differences or improvements that uh, TSVs solve? Alex, that's a great question. 3D has actually been around for a long time. Uh, Jim Mindel from Georgia Tech, he addressed some of the issues more than 20 years ago in papers that appeared in the ISSCC and the IEEE. But it's, uh, it's only recently that limit that quantum mechanical as well as atomistic limitations to scaling has made 3D become attractive and economical and necessary. Uh, initially, the most primitive version of 3D is what's it, what was in cell phones, which is just stacked chips that are uh, wire bonded. And in this, in this case, the chips are progressively smaller as you go higher, and they're glued to each other so that uh, in a pagoda fashion so that you can wire subsequent layers to layers below. The problem with that is that these wires have a fixed amount of impedance. Uh, they have capacitance and inductance and resistance, and it's a mechanical process, which is you know, which is manual and undesirable, not completely reliable. And so, in order to as as, as microprocessor performance improved, uh, the, the delay caused by this impedance on these wires was uh, began began to be very punishing. So, uh, the ability to reduce these many millimeter wires across chip into just a couple microns of vertical via becomes more and more attractive, which is what has driven the family of technologies into 3D. As I understand it, too, uh, beyond the, the issues of resistance and impotence, uh, which are certainly uh, significant, uh, there's also uh, heat issues, uh, which can certainly become worse when you start stacking uh, one processor upon the next. Uh, do TSVs actually aid in that in any way? The total power dissipation and the heat, uh, dissipating the heat in a 3D solution is indeed a challenge. 
And uh, it, it is it's the first thing that people ask, because, of course, area increases as the square of the dimension, and the volume increases as the cube. In the most common applications for 3D, people advocate stacking memory on top of processors. And fortunately, memories are very low power density uh, chips. And uh, because of that, if one is careful and manages the activity of the memory appropriately and, and the placement of effective cooling, we find that we're able to manage the, uh, the temperature of a, a memory microprocessor assembly. Does the actual kind of metal or alloy that you pour into the TSV matter? That's another good question. Uh, typically, the true silicon via that's, that's talked about in the press is, is tungsten. Um, tungsten is a, is a good conductor, but it's, it's resistive. Uh, it's desirable to replace that with copper. And in fact, uh, work going on at IBM and at other companies is very quickly trying to make sure that that intermetallic, that the uh, true silicon via is made of copper. Now, there has been proposed that besides being an electrical conductor, that one can use these true silicon vias as thermal heat pipes or as thermal conductors, relating to your earlier question. This tends to be problematic because that means that these vias have to pierce the entire, has to occupy a large amount of area in excess of 10% of the total area, which creates blockages to the wiring. Now, some of the, uh, we should backtrack a little bit, some of the through silicon, some of these 3D solutions are in fact uh, chip stack, uh, or stacks of known good dye. Other solutions are wafer scale integration in which we are bonding whole wafers. Now the nice thing in bonding whole wafers, the difference between a chip stack solution and a whole wafer solution, is that the wafer scale integration in the most advanced, and this is the most advanced of 3D flavors, in this most advanced flavor, the, truce, the via that is etched to the layer below only needs to go through the front end of line or the active silicon portion of the wafer. As soon as that via, as soon as that connection through the wafer comes up to the metal layers of a conventional chip, then we allow the, the conventional wiring layers to propagate the signal north or vertically until it gets to the top of that layer. So. In that regard, it does not necessarily create blockages, whereas in the through silicon solution it does. So the ability to wire these chips still remains a big concern. This is actually uh, part of our, our definition uh, once you got out of the, this, uh, at first paragraph. Uh, this technique of, of wafer bonding is, is certainly what has caught quite a bit of attention. And because uh, as we pointed out, uh, some companies will package processors by layering but in this case, your technique actually uses uh, the base layer of silicon and then adds uh, active wafers on top. And as I understand it, that means that the engineer can put a processor on the bottom of the stack and then layer memory or other components across the top, which makes the uh, memory and the processor obviously much closer together uh, using the TSVs. And um, since that theoretically reduces the, the distance the data has to travel, you get significantly faster processing. You can actually um, also, you know, I think, what uh, get to a thousand-fold decrease in connector length between the, uh, the memory and the, uh, the actual processor on the bottom? Is that Absolutely, and that's actually a conservative estimate. But yes, that's correct. 
Can you explain how wafer bonding actually uh, occurs? I mean, is this something that happens in a, a clean room when you're uh, literally drilling these tiny little, tiny, tiny little holes and then pouring the metal in? It's hard to visualize. It's a really a miracle that these work and that they work so well, but it's very exciting. So again, what all these technologies share in general is is that they have vertical interconnects that pass uh, that allow a signal to pass through a given thin layer of silicon. Um, there, again, there are two flavors. One is the stacking of known good dye, and the second is the bonding of, of uh, whole wafers. And let's talk about the bonding of whole wafers, that process. And, and there are four primary processes that are used. The first is uh, building the separate layers independently. Each of these layers are uh, built independently. The base layer remains thick. The remaining layers that are going to be stacked get thinned. The way they're thinned is that they're glued to a piece of glass. The layer, the ones that are going to be stacked on top of the base layer, they are processed only to the front end of line. No metal layers are yet added. So it's processed through the front end of line. It is then glued to this piece of glass. After it's glued to this piece of glass, it's polished down. It, it's sanded down essentially with the Chemex process and reduced to the correct thickness. It's then flipped over, and it's bonded to the layer below. After it's bonded to the layer below, the, a laser or water ablates the uh, adhesive and removes that glass handle. And so now we have a two-layer two assembly. To this two-layer assembly, we etch the vertical via holes. They're etched until we hit the layer below. Once, the, once that layer is, is is etched through, we, um, we fill the holes with, with the desired metal. Um, once the, the metal is filled, it's co- as we talked about co- copper or tungsten, once they're connected and once the layer on top is planarized with another polish, then we can proceed on the rest of our way and add the back end of line, the metallization on top of the second layer and go on and on. But the, the most important thing to preserve is the integrity of the device, devices on each of the layers, which means that we can no longer use high temperature once each of the layers is built. So what's critical is that 3D integration is a low-temperature, high-pressure bonding technique. So the wafer is completed. We go through this, these processes. The wafer is completed. The wafer is then diced. Uh, and it's mounted in conventional modules, and they're tested as if they were just normal products. As I understand it, one of the uh, barriers to creating three-dimensional chips in the past in terms of um, drilling channels down like this in in the uh, Z-axis, as you say, uh, is that creating the channel for the connection, you actually were taking away from the surface area you had available on any particular uh, wafer, and that that... Uh, caused some significant issues. Has the increase in basically the concentration of transistors, the you know the one, the wonderful thing that's driving Moore's law, um, created the conditions where TSVs can be used, or is it actually a, a new etching technique, a, an ability to create much smaller holes, or is it some combination of the two? Well, that's a fair question because uh, in- indeed, if we lose device density because we had to give it back to pass-throughs for the vertical via, uh, then we're sort of shooting ourselves in the foot. We're defeating ourselves. 
so what we find is that um, if, if we, and, and very clearly, Alex, if one has to know where, at what level of integration we should use through silicon vias. For instance, if you only use them for uh, the I.O. Of the, of the signal at, at the highest, most level of the chip, yes, it's, it's effective, but not as we're not perhaps extracting all the good that might be gotten from this technology. On the other hand, if you try to use vertical vias to contact individual devices, say PFET, to N, PFET on one layer to NFET on another, well, that, that massive number of vias creates a, an unacceptable amount of blockages, as you'd expect. And so what we find is the answer is somewhere in between. Uh, at some level of resource, at some functional level, uh, macro level, if you will, we find that's the most effective connection that doesn't create too many blockages and doesn't impede wireability, but still allows you to communicate vertically in, in an effective manner. And this is true, this is more true of the wafer scale integration than of the uh, through silicon via chip stacked approach. Now, as you move from the uh, lab to fab, as they say, uh, what are the barriers to larger scale manufacturing? Another great question. Obviously, the total power dissipation and the heat dissipation needs to be closely monitored, as we talked about. Um, testing of the assemblies is, is very, very important because uh, we don't want to build trash, of course. We want to make sure that uh, we're each, that at each step along the, the way that we can assure that we've, uh, that we've achieved functional hardware. We, the cost of the assembly is very much a boundary condition. It, in general, we believe that this actually saves system cost, but nonetheless, for each, for each module, the modules are, of course, of higher value than they cost more than they used to. Um, each of the process modules that we that uh, comprise 3D integration has its own yield curve to climb. That's what we actively have to have to achieve now before it goes into full manufacturing. And probably the most uh, the thing with the biggest lead time is that the design of these 3D assemblies really causes designers and the software tools that they use to think about 3D in a different way. It, we, we need to design chips differently than we used to. And all the engineering design automation that we use to build 2D chips has to be revisited for accommodating the, the 3D uh, nature of the design. So there, there are really fairly uh, wide-reaching repercussions then if you start at, at this level of change. They are, but fortunately, the, the repercussions that you mentioned sort of scale with the how complex the technology is. For simple chip stacking of known good dye with through silicon vias, it presents a, a subset of challenges that we will see when we do full wafer scale integration and bonding of, uh, of whole wafers. So fortunately, our industry is getting eased into this, but uh, nonetheless, it's urgent that we get going immediately and uh, and getting the tools ready. Now, you mentioned that you thought that a uh, thousand-fold decrease in, in connector length um, was probably conservative, uh, and that there might be, a, I think, uh, another estimate I saw is a hundred-fold increase in uh, connector density, um, and there might be significant improvements uh, towards uh, power efficiency as well, uh, and, and perhaps uh, heat dissipation, although it sounds like that's still something you're experimenting with. Um, in terms of 
then the real-world applications of those things, what, what does that mean then for the next generation of processors? Um, where do you think you'll start seeing them first, and what sorts of impact would they have? Alex, this is probably the most exciting part of my job. It, it's the most important aspect of 3D. 3D promises to enable whole new compute capabilities which do not presently exist in the present paradigm. There, there are whole capabilities that we just cannot pre- pre- that we cannot presently achieve in two dimensions. And the industry can only begin to imagine the things that can be done when a microprocessor becomes proximal to that much real data with that low with, with such low access latency. The applications are uh, are really going to be very exciting. Well, I certainly start wanting to throw out words like uh, quantum computing, and uh, we start talking about uh, teraflop processing, things like that. Um, I, I can imagine the artificial intelligence folks becoming uh, quite excited, uh, to say nothing of uh, the mobile device makers. I imagine um, chips that can respond that quickly might make significant uh, changes to the way people can access and also analyze data on the fly. Gary Kasparov, when he was playing against IBM's uh, chess machine, said that he felt like he was playing the hand of God, and that he felt that uh, he said that he, th- he could feel the machine outsmarting him at every move. And of course, you know that was even a less complex machine, and it certainly was not a quantum computer. And uh, you know, but and it's almost amazing how little intelligence. Uh, collectively it takes to give the illusion that it has intelligence. You know, that machine was not intelligent. But it does beg this point that when you collect enough compute horsepower in one place, it does, in fact, produce the illusion of, or, or perhaps real, who knows, that, uh, that the throughput uh, has achieved a new, a new realm or a new plateau in, uh, in function. So who knows? Well, it certainly makes the touring tests more interesting. Indeed. <laughs> Well, when can we expect to see uh, some production of 3D chips? 2008, 2009? Who knows? Well, I'm an IBM Watson research person rather than a development mm. person, so it's certainly not... Uh, I'll have to tow the company line and, and refer you to the, uh, the release. <laughs> okay. Well, I, I heard uh, expected production in uh, 2008 with uh, initial applications and mobile devices and wireless communication, and I think... Uh, the memory on processor technology would be available for servers and supercomputers in around 2009, at least uh, according to that release. Thank so. you. You're more current than I am. <laughs> That's, that, my job is to read about it. I think your job is to come up with it last time uh, I checked. Now, as I understand it, the, the 3D chips that you all are talking about, uh, were they developed in concert with RPI, or the Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute, or just by IBM? Uh, glad you raised this question because I want to make sure the correct people get recognized. IBM has been working on 3D for quite a long time in, in its various uh, embodiments. More recent, within the last uh, within the last couple of years, it's been supported by DARPA. It's been a DARPA-funded research program. And we've had a number of subcontractors of what you mentioned, RPI. RPI was one of the subcontractors that IBM hired on this contract to help us understand the, uh, the limitations of 3D and the fabrication of 3D. But we've had other contractors also, and they've all made some very important contributions. 
Well, is there anything else you'd like to say about 3D chips that people should know or should be thinking about or um, should realize in, in terms of uh, recognizing the, uh, the importance or the breakthrough? Yeah. Uh, and this is, this is sort of a fun one, Alan. We've all heard so many times about Moore's Law and how challenging and difficult it is to stay on Moore's Law. Yet, nonetheless, you know, human beings are so innovative that we see, despite uh, people predicting the end of Moore's Law, performance just continues to improve and improve and improve. And 3 is, is another way in which we give the illusion of extending the technology, uh, extending a given technology, but we're not, but we do it in different ways, meaning that uh, the material, it's been very hard to keep up material scaling, but we have, we continue to inject new materials and new structures to extend, to provide the same capability that those older materials would have if we could have extended them, which we can't. So 3D is, uh, it's not a cure-all, you know, it's a, uh, at some point, we will set. We, we've gone to 3D because we saturated our, the carrying capability in 2D, and microarchitectural trends will continue to increase the number of cores per microprocessor. And at some point, I suspect, that perhaps in my career, or perhaps in, in the next generation of engineers' career, we will consume. We will uh, completely flush out the capabilities that 3D can extend, and they'll have to be yet another technology. But once again, we have. Uh, we see that there is a path to extending performance, maybe perhaps unconventionally or not the way we used to, but uh, it, it, in fact, will provide uh, the abil- our ability to uh, extend performance to yet another few generations. Just for our listeners' sake, of course, you can review Moore's Law um, through Intel or, uh, as we prefer, in whatis.com. There's a pretty good definition there. Uh, it's the observation that uh, Gordon Moore, one of the co-founders of Intel, made that uh, the number of transistors on an integrated circuit essentially doubles every 24 months. And it's occasionally quoted as uh, 18 months, I think. Um, but I think Gordon Moore says it's basically every two years. Would you agree? Yes, depending on who you speak to you know, and, and whatever, which product application it, it is in their range. That's correct. And that's the end of the interview. Thanks again to Kerry Bernstein, who is the Principal Investigator for 3D Integration Technology at the IBM T.J. Watson Research Center in upstate New York. And, of course, thanks to IBM for taking the time and making the interview possible. For more about 3D chips, semiconductors, processors, and, of course, anything else related to IT technology, make sure to visit our definitions at whatis.com and check out thousands of other IT terms. Thanks for listening to this podcast from whatis.com. I'm Alex Howard. Hope you have a great day.